Waco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. The Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners has authorized the city to borrow $10 million for proposed parks projects. The projects will be paid for by three separate bonds that collectively are known as the 2018 Parks Bicentennial Bond. Parks Administrator Paula McDevitt told the Park Board on Tuesday the financing supports a variety of projects. These bonds will be focused on projects to build trails, plant trees, um, entryway beautification problem, uh, projects, in addition to, um, as I said, the 14,000 street trees and also um, new alleyway enhancements and improvements and uh, greenway uh, system. Parks Operations Director Dave Williams said many of the proposed projects connect trails within the city. One such project would follow Duke Energy Power Lines west from the Switchyard Park. So a corridor that goes under overhead power lines roughly from the west side of Rogers Street through an easement all the way to Weimer Road would connect Switchyard Park and east, a very coveted east-west uh, bike and pedestrian facility it would have access to RCA Park. Uh, once you get to Re- Weimar Road, you can go north to Wapahani Mountain Bike Park, further north eventually via side pass, we hope, to Twin Lakes Recreation Center, and then to the south on Weimar to Tap Road for the Clear Creek Trailhead. So this would be a home run as far as connectivity to our near uh, west side uh, facilities and connections uh, to Switchyard Park. Two more projects would create a three-mile hiking loop around Griffey Lake and complete the Lower Cascades Trail. Williams said the grand plan is to connect Bloomington's northernmost parks properties to the southernmost starting at Griffey Lake. We can get through Cascades Park, get to Miller Showers Park, and then we're literally a hop, skip, and a jump to the Beeline Trail, which goes all the way the length of the downtown connected to Switchyard Park. And then you continue the vision south of Country Club with um, another trail project that is in the park bond list of uh, basically extending the Beeline Trail south of Country Club. And then, of course, the Clear Creek Trail right before you hit the county line. In addition, Public Works Director Adam Wasson proposed improvements to three downtown alleys near the Courthouse Square. Improvements include road resurfacing, better lighting, and art installations. Park Board President Kathleen Mills voiced her support saying, quote, it's a really exciting range of projects, unquote. Board member Joe Hoffman also voiced his support. 
I've been lobbying for the so-called power line trail for many, many years, I think at least 15 years. And so seeing this as actually uh, coming to pass is, uh, you know, very gratifying. The city's controller, Jeff Underwood, said no parks fees will be used to repay the $10 million bond. It will be repaid through a property tax increase of $0.03 per $100 of assessed value. So to give you some idea, if you have a house that has a net assessed value, so it's gross assessed minus all your deductions, gets you down to 100000 this would cost you about $30 per year for the repayment of this bond. At Mayor John Hamilton's request, Underwood is exploring offering a portion of the bonds directly to Monroe County residents. Uh, so we're uh, trying to reach out to a group called the Neighborly Group that specializes in doing that, and that would allow us to have a um, smaller bond available to the public that they would not necessarily need a brokerage account. So they essentially there would be a process where they could subscribe to and buy those bonds directly. So we're working very hard to try and make that happen for a portion of the bonds. Underwood anticipates the city's debt service payments will be between $700,000 and $800,000 per year. The Bicentennial Parks bond still has to be approved by the Bloomington City Council, and many members voiced their support for it in the meeting last night. The City Council will take the bond up again in its October 31st session. Fifteen Indiana counties are getting a share of funds raised through timber sales at State Forest. State DNR auctioned parts of Yellowwood State Forest to a timber company last year. Monroe County will receive over $10,000, according to a DNR press release. The DNR says counties will use timber sale revenues to boost rural and volunteer fire departments, including improving wildfire firefighting capabilities. Brown County is getting the largest share of the revenue at more than $64,000. Harrison County will receive nearly $35,000. Morgan County will get nearly $25,000. And Jackson County, $13,000. Monroe County will receive more than $11,000. Nine other counties are getting less than $10,000 each. The DNR's Division of Forestry allocates 15% of timber sales revenue from state forest to county where the harvests occur. The Trump administration just issued a list of planned environmental and public health rollbacks. These include lowering age restrictions for workers, administering restricted-use pesticides from 18 to 16. One of those pesticides is chlorpyrifos, which EPA scientists say can cause brain damage in children at small doses. The Obama administration enacted the minimum age rule to protect minors who work on farms. Many of them are migrant workers who speak little English. That makes it harder for them to understand how to apply pesticides safely. Physicians and farm worker rights advocates led a years-long fight for the rule. A ban on chlorpyrifos was scheduled, but former EPA head Scott Pruitt blocked it. A federal appeals court recently overturned Pruitt's reversal of the ban. Under acting EPA head Andrew Wheeler, the agency is fighting the court's order to ban the pesticide. A new study from the University of North Carolina, or UNC, found that deaths related to air pollution in the U.S declined by almost half between 1990 and 2010. Air pollution decreased in that period. 
The improvements in air quality and public health also coincided with federal air quality regulations. Despite improvements, air pollution remains an important public health issue in the U.S. The estimated 71,000 deaths from air pollution in 2010 translates to one of every 35 deaths in the country. That's as many deaths as there are from all traffic accidents and shootings combined. On October 11, 2016, two environmental activists calling themselves valve turners closed the valves of two Enbridge Energy Company pipelines. The action was in protest against the climate impact of tar sands oil. On October 16th, a district judge dismissed all the charges against them. He ruled that the prosecution had not presented sufficient evidence that the defendants had damaged the pipelines. The protesters warned the company of their action when they undertook them, and Enbridge remotely shut down the pipelines, resulting in no damage. The News Review reports that the U.S. Supreme Court granted a stay in a climate trial on October 19th. The trial, Juliana versus United States, is now on hold pending a response from the plaintiffs. The Department of Justice, pressured by the White House, asked the Supreme Court to dismiss the case, which is brought by 21 young plaintiffs. Julia Olson, one of the lawyers representing the group, said the prosecution is confident that once the court receives the response, the trial will proceed. The lawsuit alleges that the federal government has violated young people's constitutional rights through policies that cause a dangerous climate. The plaintiffs want a court to order the government to stop authorizing fossil fuel drilling, curb carbon dioxide emissions by 2100, and develop a national climate recovery plan. The Trump administration has set its fracking, drilling, and mining sites on U.S. national forests. Conservation organizations argue that such activity would threaten the climate, wildlife, and watersheds. The Center for Biological Diversity said that more fracking and mining with fewer safeguards would be disastrous for national forests and watersheds. Taylor McKinnon, a public lands campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity, said, quote, pushing new fossil fuel development in our national forests ignores the alarm bells that world climate scientists rang loudly last week. National forests and public lands are where we should stop fossil fuel expansion first, end quote. Environmental groups are asking the Bureau of Land Management to enhance transparency and public involvement in decisions about drilling, fracking, and mining in national forests. Conservation groups recommend that instead of weakening protections, federal agencies should repair damage the mining industry has already caused in the forests. An analysis published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences concludes that human activities are forcing Earth into a sixth mass extinction. Human activities leading to extinction include pollution, deforestation, overpopulation, poaching, warming seas, and extreme weather events related to climate change. Because of these activities, scientists predict that it will take three to seven million years to restore biodiversity to pre-human levels. The researchers found that when certain species die off, especially the larger mammals, many other wildlife species disappear too. The researchers call for critical conservation measures to stop this extinction trend. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. 
We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now it's Get Out and Hike, showcasing the wonderful wild areas of Southern Indiana and beyond. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. This week I'm with Jill Vance, a naturalist at Monroe Lake, who will be talking to us about a few fine trails just south of Bloomington, Indiana. Town State Recreation Area on Monroe Lake has three different trails that people can walk on it. Our easiest trail is the Tree Trek Trail. Uh, That's a pretty short trail, just about a quarter mile in length. That's a good one for people with kids who are just looking uh, for an easy walk. It's a quarter mile to half a mile, uh, very easy. We also have a longer trail that's my personal favorite uh, out at Payne Town, and that's the Bluebird Trail. That one gives you a little bit more of some hill climbs involved. Uh, It does get into some little prettier areas, though, climbing through some old fields and up to some hilltops. Uh, That's about one and a quarter miles in length. Uh, Probably not one that I'd recommend for very young children, but uh, certainly age 10 and up could handle that, along with adults, without a big problem. Uh, And then we also have the Whitetail Trail at um, at Payne Town. And this one is a one-way trail or an out and back, and it connects um, the trailhead inside the park with our trail head on the edge of the park up behind the property office and that's a way that people can link from our trails into the Hoosier National Forest uh, Pate Hollow Trail which shares a trailhead up by our property office and it's a one mile trail that uh, connects the two systems uh, it's one more moderate uh, but it does have some hill, a few kill climbs uh, a little bit of some steep ravines involved with it but it's a good one for people who want to extend their hikes by uh, connecting into the pay hollow system in the Hoosier. Thank you, Jill. Is there a fee for to come into the park? Uh, Payne Town does charge an entrance fee during the summer and the fall months um, and in the late spring as well. Uh, we are free during the winter, uh, so basically right around the beginning of November until usually sometime around mid-March. Uh, there's no fee to enter Payne Town, and you can come on in and check out the trails. Jill, how could people find the park? Is there a website they could go to? Absolutely. Um, I will give you the shortcut URL because sometimes it can be a bit of a challenge to navigate through all the menu selections. If you just go to tinyurl.com slash Monroe Lake, that'll take you right directly to our page and you can download a copy of our trail map right there. All right. Thanks a lot. Up next, WFHB's Norm Holy talks with Dr. Indra Frank, Environmental Health Director with the Hoosier Environmental Council. Dr. Frank testified before the EPA earlier this year about Indiana's coal ash ponds. What's the background on coal ash lagoons? Once coal has been burned, um, there's an ash that's left behind. Um, It's a waste product of of burning coal, and unfortunately, it has toxic heavy metals in it, things like lead and mercury, arsenic, Um, and those were there as trace elements in the coal, but once we've burned the coal and burned off most of the carbon, 
um, they're in higher concentration in the ash. So the, the ash has to be disposed of carefully, otherwise um, it could contaminate uh, water. So that's the, the big issue with it. Here in Indiana, we actually have um, more coal ash ponds than any other state in the country um, at uh, about 86. And these ponds are formed when the, the ash is moved by water out of the power plant. So they're using water to, to rinse it out, basically, and then you wind up with this mixture of ash and water stored in an impoundment with a dam or a berm around it. Um, most of the impoundments in Indiana are not lined. Um, and just last month, uh, March of this year, uh, groundwater data was released from our coal ash sites, uh, actually looking at you know groundwater where the coal ash is being stored. And what we see in that data is that at every place we are disposing of coal ash and we don't have some kind of a liner under the ash, we're getting contamination of the underlying groundwater. Let me ask you a question about why were they ever allowed to dump this stuff without a lining? I mean, even for our trash, though all of that stuff is lined, so the, any heavy metals, batteries, et cetera, don't leach down into the groundwater. So, Right, yeah. The, you know, the United States um, didn't have federal laws regarding waste disposal until... 1980, but even then, and, and of course, most of our a lot of our power plants were built prior to that. But but even at that time, um, they were given exemptions. There wasn't any regulation of coal ash in until <clears throat> 2015. Uh, that's the first rule, rule we've had in the United States regarding coal ash disposal. So, what did you emphasize in your testimony uh, to the EPA? Well, so as I mentioned, the first regulation of coal ash was the 2015 federal rule. Um, with the administration change uh, last year, the utilities sent requests to the EPA um, to actually change some of that 2015 rule. And Scott Pruitt then directed the, the EPA to draft revisions to the coal ash regulation. So uh, those revisions were put out for public comment uh, in March, and there was one hearing. The EPA held a, a single hearing on these proposed revisions to the rule, um, and I was able to travel to Washington, D.C. to attend that hearing. Um, the proposed revisions um, would weaken the coal ash regulation. Um, it would weaken protection of groundwater. It would re weaken some of the cleanup requirements it would weaken uh, requirements for responses to coal ash spills. Um, it would allow, or it weakens the requirements regarding uh, locations where coal ash can be disposed of. Um, so it would weaken the requirements regarding floodplains, wetlands, or fault zones. Um, and it could potentially even um, remove some of the transparency that we have on coal ash from the 2015 rule. Um, so I testified against this weakening of the coal ash regulation, and I also, in my uh, testimony, emphasized the impact that we're already seeing to groundwater in Indiana from coal ash uh, as, you know, a strong reason why we need to make sure that going forward we're protecting our water resources and we don't weaken those protections. Now, 
did I get this right? So there were no public comment meetings in the state of Indiana regarding this, this change? It was only a one, one place? There was a single, that's correct, yeah. So not only are they proposing to weaken the coal ash rule, um, they are trying to move that, that change to the rule as rapidly as possible. So the EPA had initially um, told one of the courts that they would be offering a 90-day public comment period, uh, but they shortened that to 45 days and then held just the single uh, public hearing. When the 2015 coal ash rule was written, there were um, public hearings at a variety of locations around the country and a much more extensive process for public input. It's really amazing how ramming everything through. So what what is the extent of groundwater contamination in the, the state of Indiana? Sure. So we have data from 15 power plants um, around the state, and at some of those locations there's more than one coal ash impoundment. Um, and at all 15 we are seeing contamination of the groundwater. It's less at the locations that had liners under their under their coal ash, and in some instances, substantially less. And it's interesting, there's, there's a variety of heavy metals that can be present in coal ash, so it varies somewhat which of those metals will show up in the groundwater at, at which location. Um, we're seeing arsenic, um, boron, molybdenum, lithium, um, lead, uh, those are the, kind of the, the, the major ones. Um, and in looking at the groundwater data, so my colleagues and I have gone through all of those groundwater reports, um, and we're comparing the groundwater data to um, standards that are based on health, so standards for drinking water um, primarily. So anytime I refer to a, one of those spots as having contamination with one of those metals, what I mean is contamination that exceeds uh, what would be safe in drinking water. Now, if the groundwater is contaminated, are, are the samples taken at varying distances from the, the ash ponds? That's a really good question. Um, and what, you, what your question points out is that groundwater doesn't sit still. It moves. Um, so once it's been contaminated, you can wind up with that contamination moving in the, in the groundwater. Um, the answer is no at, the, at these uh, power plant coal ash disposal sites, um, so far they have uh, monitoring wells just immediately adjacent to the edge of the, the coal ash. Um, so they've measured it there, but they, they haven't measured at a further distance. Now, we do have a few places in Indiana, though, where people with private wells have had their well water tested. There are actually four locations that I know of where the utilities are having to uh, replace drinking water for people whose wells were contaminated by coal ash. How much uh, mercury actually gets into the groundwater? Oh, that's a, also a good question. Right. Um, so um, in the past, we really worried about mercury with burning coal because even though it wasn't a lot of mercury, mercury vaporizes at a relatively low temperature, so it would go up the smokestack with the the rest of the smoke from, from burning the coal, more controls were put on for that airborne pollution, and you'd think that that would pull the mercury then more into the ash. 
What's interesting is that we're not seeing it in the groundwater at all, at least here in Indiana. I've been speaking with Dr. Indira Frank. She works for the Hoosier Environmental Council, where she is the Environmental Health and Water Policy Director. Thank you very much for your comments. You're welcome. It's very good talking with you. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And it's time for In Nature, written and recorded by EcoReport contributors past and present. This is In Nature. Chipmunks are common mammals found here in Bloomington. However, a computer search reveals more about humans than the chipmunk. More entries were how to get rid of them than those providing species information. Chipmunks choose their den sites carefully and return to them year after year. They are considered a true hibernator since breathing temperature and heart rate go down significantly. They create a nesting area below the frost line where they sleep in a ball with their tails curled around them. If found when hibernating, they cannot be immediately roused, but require some time for their bodily processes to rise from this low point. In the fall, they spend significant time collecting seeds and storing them away separately from their sleeping area. They will eat from time to time from this winter stock and thus continue to metabolize. Another area must be provided in the burrow where they deposit these products of metabolism without contaminating their food and sleeping areas. They emerge from their burrows during unseasonably warm weather in the winter and eventually return to full behavior in the spring. You've been listening to In Nature. This week in our listening area, Take a leaf hike at Brown County State Park on Saturday, October 27th from 12.30 to 1.15 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center for this half-mile hike to learn about the beautiful fall leaves. You can have some fun with fungus at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, October 27th from 4 to 5 p.m. Get low to the ground and explore the world of mushrooms. Study the colorful caps that decorate Spring Mill. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center. There will be an autumn owl prowl at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Sunday, October 28th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. When the sun goes down, owls awaken to go in search of prey. Learn about a few of the species that coexist in our area and go on a hike in hopes of hearing or seeing one in action. Dress for the weather and bring a flashlight. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Learn all about animal tracks at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, October 28th at 3 p.m., including how to identify animals by their prints. The Lunch with Nature series will be talking about the Eastern Coyote at its next program. It will meet at the Paintown State Recreation Area on Monday, October 29th, from 11 to 12.30 p.m. Bring a sack lunch and learn how coyotes are adapting to us. You'll learn about their life cycle and how they have been so successful in Indiana. Pre-register at the Indiana DNR website.
And that wraps up our show for this week. EcoReport is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Sarah Vaughn. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Brower, and Sarah Vaughn edited the script. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike, and Cindy Bollet edited the segment. Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our interim producer is Jan Walker. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and get out and hike episodes anytime at WFHB.org. For for WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.